probably most of you have heard the saying, I think a, a Johnny Cash song went something like, Matthew 24 is at the door. Does that sound familiar? Something like that. Anyway, the idea is that, uh, look, as you look around the world today, you see that uh, the end time is ra rapidly approaching. Well, I wouldn't say that you find that necessarily in Matthew 24. You might get the impression by putting a lot of other scriptures together. But today I want to look at Matthew 24 briefly. Actually, I'm going to focus on something else related closely to it. But we need to understand that there are different approaches to this particular passage. The, it's called the Olivet Prophecy, or the Olivet Discourse. And there are three, the three basic pro approaches. You could probably break it down into more than that, but uh, the three basic approaches, approaches are as follows. First of all, many people see this as strictly futuristic. It's all out in the future. And the idea goes like this, that sometime in the future, long after the time of Christ and the apostles, then you'll begin to see wars and rumors of wars and false prophets and all of those things. This is the beginning of the birth pangs. And this will lead to, finally, great tribulation, such as was not from the beginning of the world to this time, and then the second coming of Christ shortly thereafter. So it's all out in the future. And when we read about the great tribulation there, we're reading about something that is in the future. So remember, this is one view. It's the futurist view. Now, another view is that it was all fulfilled, the entire Olivet Prophecy was fulfilled in the first century at the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And those scriptures about the coming of Christ are not about a literal, actual second coming where you see him descending and where he catches up the saints, but it's about a coming in judgment against Jerusalem. And when you read their explanations or hear someone explain it, it's somewhat plausible in that when you go back to the Old Testament, indeed you find many, many passages about God's visitations. He's coming in wrath. He will visit you in the day of my visitation. You see that over and over in the Old Testament. The day of the Lord, that means the day of his wrath. So I say, well, this is wrath upon Jerusalem, and that's what these uh, passages are all about. And all of it, therefore, was fulfilled in the first century. And that the, 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 the second coming, the actual second coming, is still future, and that's the final judgment. So that is a, that's called the preterist view, by the way, preterism, and uh, as opposed to futurism. So one, one view here puts it all in the future, entirely in the future. Another view puts it all in the past. In AD 70. I mean, those are two opposite views, very different views. Now, the third view, and this is the one that I hold. You knew I'd save that one to for last. The one that I hold is as follows Jesus was talking about things in the immediate future in his day, things that would affect the apostles and the disciples of the first century. He was talking about the coming destruction of that temple standing then, not a future tribulation temple. And, and he was also talking about the second coming, when people would look up and see him visibly descending uh, from heaven above, and when the saints would be caught up. So he's talking about both of those. 
Now, how in the world can I make that statement? Well, I'll show you how. Now, I'm going to go back to chapter 23 in a little while, but first of all, I want to take a look at this. Chapter 24. If I can un unhitch my glasses here. But in Matthew 24, you will notice that Jesus just has been talking about, well, I think they'll work now. He just has been talking about the religious leaders of his day. He has just told the disciples when they were showing him the, the beautiful building of the temple, and it was beautiful in those days. It was one of the wonders of the world, the ancient world. And when they were showing him, Jesus said, see how beautiful these buildings are. In the temple, it had been refurbished and, uh, and, and, made, and beautified uh, at that time. And he said, I tell you, so you look at all of this, I tell you, it's not one stone will be left on another. This building is coming down. Okay? It wasn't, that's not about a future tribulation building, is it? Now, there may, could, there, there may yet be one. I'm not going to say that there's not. And I'm, I'm not saying that that won't happen at some point. But I am saying that when Jesus and his disciples were standing there looking at that temple, standing at that day, at that time, and he said, this thing is coming down, he was talking about that temple. And it did come down. In AD 70, it came down. It was destroyed. So he was talking about that temple. And he was talking about a turbulent time that would come upon Jerusalem in that day. Now, is there a, is there a future great tribulation? Yeah, yeah, there is. You can see that in the book of Revelation. In fact, it's much broader in scope than the one described here in the Olivet Prophecy. Now, this one may allude to the broader tribulation, but specifically, he's talking about the tribulation that would befall Jerusalem and Judea in that day, in the first century. That's what he's talking about. Uh, let's take, a, just, just uh, for example, look at uh, what he says about the Great Tribulation in verse 15, Matthew 24, verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, that is, whoever reads the prophecy of Daniel, let him understand what he's talking about, then let those who are in Judea, you know, it doesn't say, let those who are in Bossier City flee to Tyler, Texas. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. <clears throat> now, some of you who don't have the history that some others of us here have. But uh, years ago, some, some of us will remember, many years ago within the Church of God, uh, and, and in fact, some of, the, some of the different groups still teach something like this, I think. But uh, we had this idea that we were all, the church was going to flee to a place of safety in the time of the end. And it was a place of final, it was a place of, of final preparation and training before Christ's return. So we were going to this singular place of safety. And then like we, we started looking at stars. I didn't. Somebody else did. But I followed along. I said, yeah, that makes sense. But anyway, uh, they started looking at some of the scriptures over there, and they came to the same conclusion that some modern-day evangelicals come to, and that is that the place, you know, the modern evangelicals say Jews in Jerusalem will flee to this place. The place was Petra. The fortress city, Petra. So we're going to Petra. Now, how do you get there from here? 
you gotta, you gotta, well, unless you're miraculously transported there, kind of like a rapture, uh, which we're against that, but so it couldn't have been that. We would have to fly. We'd have to take planes. Where are we? Where do you think you have to land to get there to get to Petra? You have to land in the place where Jesus says, "Get out of." So you got to go to the place where Jesus says you need to get out of there. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? So we go, I guess, Tel Aviv, where, I don't know. But anyway, we have to land in some place, uh, the area, the general area. But the idea was this, and I actually heard somebody present this view one time. And that is that we're going to go to Jerusalem. We'll be right there in Jerusalem when the beast power manifests itself and comes out after us. And we're going to flee from Judea and Jerusalem at that time and go to Petra. I thought, boy, that's, that's kind of reaching a little bit, I think. In fact, it is. But anyway, let's get back to this. He says, those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight might, may not be in the winter are on the Sabbath. That's because it would be terribly difficult to get out of there. The, the, the hardships of the winter and also on the Sabbath when the dates, the, 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 uh, the gates were closed, it'd be difficult to get out of there at that time. Today you could probably move right on out, but back then it might have been difficult. For then shall be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Now my question, my question came to my mind one time years ago, is uh, when you're thinking in terms of this as a global tribulation, I'm thinking, okay, there's no, no parallel for this one. You mean to tell me that the Noatian flood was not as bad as this? <laughs> when everybody was drowned except for Moses, or Noah and his family? I think that was pretty bad. How, how much worse could it get? So no, this is not talking about a global situation here. It's talking about on Judea, a tribulation coming upon Judea. That's why it says get out. Get out of Judea. I won't go over there, but you can compare uh, Luke 21. the Luke 21, and notice how it describes uh, that period. Uses a little bit different terminology. It doesn't say abomination of desolation. But it talks about the armies standing in Jerusalem, which make desolate. So you can understand that as the abomination, the armies, the Roman armies, as the abomination. Now, what actually happened in those days? And, you know, he says in Luke, uh, when you see armies, it's time to get out. Well, how in the world, I've thought about this, maybe you have too, if the armies besieged Jerusalem, if, if the Roman army besieged Jerusalem, how did anybody get out of there? Well, see, what happened was this. What happened was that the armies came in, or an army came in, Roman army, and the zealots, the Jewish zealots, they were the ones who were very active uh, activists and opposing the Romans and causing a lot of problems. And they actually fought them and chased them out of Jerusalem something you need to know about chasing away Roman armies. They're going to come back. It's a good thing, not, it's best not to do it at all. Don't chase them away. They will come back. 
and you can you can rest assured they'll have greater numbers. So that's what happened. They did come back. They did come back. But in the meantime, between the time that the zealots chased them out and foolishly burned up some of their own food supplies, the grains and stuff like that, that's a that's not a very smart thing. But anyway, that's what they did apparently. And between the time that time when they did, the Christians in Jerusalem saw the armies standing around Jerusalem or in the area. They knew they were there in force, but they, they left. But that time, the Christians got out. They're called Nazarenes, and they all went to Pella. And apparently, every last one of them left. They fled Judea and Jerusalem, got out of there, and were therefore not in the siege. When Titus and a new a new leader, a general, Titus came back with armies in force, besieged the city, trapped them within, and uh, it was it was tribulation. That's when the temple was then finally destroyed. And Titus Titus would have pursued the Jews that got out, but something happened to cut those days short, so that all the elect were not destroyed, or that the elect were not destroyed. For the elect's sake, those days were cut short. So you see how that fits the AD 70 situation. Now, there's some other things here, some problems I have with the futurist interpretation. And that's, uh, you take, for example, where it says down here in verse 40, it says, Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. And in Luke's account, it says, it mentions uh, two will be in the bed, one taken and one left. And then back up in uh, in verse 28, it says, For wherever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. When you look at Luke's account, and let's just look at that very briefly. Or is it Mark's account? Uh, no, it's Luke. Luke uh, let's look at Luke 17. It's in Luke 17. You see something of the same here. When he's talking about the uh, the future, his future. He says, he says uh, in verse 34, I tell you, in that night there will be two men in one bed. The word men is in italics. Just two in one bed. Uh, the one will be taken, the other will be left. Two will be grinding together at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. Two will be in the field, the one taken, the other left. And they answered and said to him, Where, Lord? So he said to them, Wherever the body is, there the eagles or vultures will be gathered together. Now, see, it's in a different order here. It's a different, it's a little bit different context. So, what in the world is he talking about? Or at least, what is the imagery that he has in mind as he says this? Do you know how the Romans would do when there was an uprising, like the activity of the zealots? What they would do is go into the city or into a place, an area, and they would go into the homes, just break right in. And if you got a couple of people, say in bed, they go grab one of them, pull him out of there, just either one, doesn't matter who's guilty and who's not guilty, or if they're even involved in the uprising. Because they, they took uprisings personal. You know, it's, it's, it's a serious matter. Or if two people are out in the field plowing, they just go grab one of them. Or grinding at the mill, get one of them, either one, male, female, didn't matter. Just grab one of them. And take them all out, all the people that they took, Go out, take them out, and crucify them. And says, now, if you don't stop this uprising, then this is what's going to happen to more of you. 
So that oftentimes would stop the problem. And then what would they do with the bodies? Put them in a, a big pit someplace. Just take them off and dump them all. Throw them all in there. And how would you, you see, it, see, that was considered a shameful type of burial. Not really a burial, but it's a shameful way for a, a Jewish person to be late to rest, as it were. So what would the loved ones do? They would look for the vultures. Wherever the vultures were gathering, they knew there must be bodies there. So that's how they would find their deceased loved ones, then go and get them, the bodies, and give them a proper burial. This is what Jesus, no doubt, has in mind. Now, I'm bringing this up because some people read this and say, Wow! That's the rapture! One be taken, taken up, the other left. I want to be the I'll be, want to be one of those taken. No, you don't. You don't. <laughs> but anyway, so you have some problems there with the futurist view, but you certainly have some problems with the preterist view. I'll just give you an example on that. Here where it says, uh, back in Matthew 24 again, it says, and he will, uh, verse uh, 30, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now, when I read this, I think it seems pretty clear. They, they will see the Son of Man coming. Now, remember, remember that Matthew is writing years after the fact. He's very much aware of what the two angels, described as men, who appeared there with the apostles as they watched Jesus ascend. Remember that? He said, why are you gazing into heaven? This same Jesus whom you see go into heaven will so come in like manner. So for Matthew to write this with that knowledge and think, oh no, this is not talking about the second coming. Uh, well, that's, that's a stretch, isn't it? I'll tell you how the preterist interprets this. The preterist says that this coming on the clouds of heaven, this, you will see the, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, that means you will see the evidence that the Son of Man is in heaven because you will see uh, what he said being fulfilled in Jerusalem. That's the sign that the Son of Man is in heaven uh, at the right hand of God reigning from the throne above. And he says, when he sends forth, now this is where it really gets, becomes a stretch, and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. The word angels, well, that could be translated messengers. So what's he talking about? Evangelists and missionaries and so on. He sends them with a great sound of the trumpet, sending out preaching the gospel, lifting up their voice as a trumpet, and gathering the elect. In other words, forming the New Testament church. That's a stretch. That's a reach. Uh, I don't think Matthew could have said that uh, and meant that in view of what he himself knew about what he was, re was revealed to him about the second, the visible, literal second coming of Christ. And also you read, uh, of course, in uh, what Paul said to the Thessalonians about he'll descend with the voice of the, angel, the archangel, the trump of God and the dead and Christ will rise first and so on. So this is consistent with all that. So that's, what I, that's the problem I have with the preterist view. But again, I do believe that he is, what you see is you read through Matthew 24, you find, let me get back to, get, get back to where I was going about 30 minutes ago. 
he, he's asked, he's, I want you to notice the nature of the questions he's asked here. And he's answering these questions. It says, now as he said on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be? He just had described Jerusalem's fate. And, and just had talked about the destruction of the temple. So they say, tell us when will these things be? What things? Those things we just mentioned. Those things he just mentioned. But get this. And they go and say, and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? That's two different questions. Some would say it's three different questions, but let's, let's say two. One, when will the temple be destroyed? Two, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? In other words, the new messianic age. When will the messianic age begin? And remember that Jesus said, remember what he said, very, very, very important. And he said that of that day and hour, no man knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son. So Jesus didn't know how much time would pass between the destruction of the temple and his coming. So he answers both questions in this chapter. And you have a kind of a merging of two different things being discussed. One pertains to the destruction. So some of these verses pertain to the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem. And the other verses pertain to his second coming. I think that's pretty clear, isn't it? Does that seem like a reasonable position to take? I think it is. Now, now again, this, this is not, does not mean that there's no future tribulation because Revelation talks about that. It talks about, though, it, in, in the description of the great multitude, it says that these are those who came out of, and definite article is there, the great tribulation. And they're described as coming from all nations and tongues and tribes and people, not just Judea. So that's a different tribulation. It's a tribulation much broader in scope, but what he talks talking about here primarily is the tribulation befalling Jerusalem under the Romans. Now, with all that in mind, all that in mind, let's get to the main point here. We want to look at the context. A lot of times the background is ignored. When we start looking at Matthew 24 and the Olivet Prophecy, because we want to look at headlines and modern you know, news stories and, and start reading that into it. I understand that. I understand why there's a, a curiosity there. But let's look at this backdrop. What's in the backdrop? You know, what he's talking about here, the reason it's important to recognize that this is not only about his future second coming, but also about the destruction that would befall Jerusalem and the temple, is what is in the immediate chapter, the chapter just before this one. It is actually connected to this. It's a lead-in to what he says, the questions that are asked by the disciples, and the entire discussion in Matthew 24 that continues on into chapter 25. So this whole section begins in chapter 23 with what might be described as a prophetic pronouncement against the religious leaders of his day, and when you read it, you realize that he, this guy is you, this, this man, the Messiah, is using the language of the prophets, and you're reminded as you read it of some of the things you read in the prophets and what they said 
about the destruction of Israel, the captivity, for example, of Israel and later of Judah, and so on. Uh, but, but his language is, runs parallel with, resembles theirs in many, many ways. Let's be, go back to chapter 23 here, and I'll just read several verses before we get to these. I want to focus on these seven woes. The seven woes. The title of the sermon is Seven Woes and the Fall of Jerusalem. Seven woes. Now, if you're using the King James or New King James, you might count eight. But most, most scholars believe that there's only seven here, that verse 14 was not in the original. Let me just get that out of the way now. Verse 14 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers, therefore you will, uh, you are, you will receive greater condemnation. Now what it says here is true, and it's also stated in Mark 12. But... Uh, in verse 40, Mark 12, verse 40. But many scholars believe that because this verse is absent in many of the earlier manuscripts, and in fact is found in some of those manuscripts right after verse 12, that that's an indication that it's been tampered with, that somebody has added. They, they evidently took it from Mark 12 and inserted it here. So, that's why, if you're reading one of the modern English translations, it probably jumps from verse 13 to verse 15. Anybody reading one? You notice that? Yeah, you, you are. You'll notice it goes from verse 13 to verse 15. That's because it's generally recognized that this verse was probably drawn from Mark 12 and verse 40. Still true, but that's why we, have, that's why we commonly speak of this chapter as having seven woes, not eight. We like the number seven anyway, don't we? Number of completion. So in, in chapter 23, let's just read up to this, uh, to this. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and they do not. Now, some people look at this saying, well, What in the world is he doing telling his disciples, to do whatever the scribes and Pharisees say to do. When Jesus himself obviously rejected many of their traditions and did not teach his disciples that they had to obey them. Well, what he's talking about, obviously, what his emphasis is that they say and do not. They say do this, but they themselves don't do it. They will impose heavy burdens on you, but they don't, they don't bother to lift a one of them. So that's his point here. It's not saying that everything they say is right, but he is because they have ensconced themselves in the seat of Moses, as it were. Therefore, whatever they say, if, if it's truly of Moses, if it's part of the law, then that do. But uh, don't, his main thrust here, the main point is don't be like them because they say and then don't do. For they bind heavy burdens, verse 4, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. Now he's getting into the heart of the matter. This is the problem, a major problem. Everything for them was external, and there was no internal substance. It was all external. But when you look into the heart, 
and he could see their hearts. When you look inside, when you look at the motives, what is, what is back of what they do? It's all for me, me, me. It's all self-motivated, self-centered, self-serving, self-gratifying. It was all about them. Though they had this appearance, this outward appearance of great righteousness. They do all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplace, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. Now he says something interesting here, and I think it's often misinterpreted what he says. Let's go ahead and read it. But you do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ. Rabbi means teacher. You have only one teacher, that's Christ. And you are all brethren. You're brothers. You're sis brothers and sisters. Do not call anyone on earth your father. Does that mean you can't call your dad father? I, I've had people make that argument and say, no, I call him dad. What do you think dad means? It means father. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not saying that you can't use titles, that there's no place even in, in a church situation for titles. You find titles used elsewhere. He's talking about an attitude. He's talking about pretentious use of, of, of titles. As the Pharisees. Oh, Rabbi, Rabbi. Oh, they love that. And do not be called teachers, for you have one teacher, the Christ. And of course, the New Testament tells you that there are, that God has appointed teachers, pastors, teachers, evangelists, and so on. All, all those things are real functions, and there are titles associated with those functions. There's nothing wrong with that, and that's not what Christ is addressing here. Not at all. He's talking about pretentious titles, the way the Pharisees use these titles. Love to be looked upon compared with the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and others, you know, the fathers of the, of the, uh, the faith, David, all the others. They like to be, they like to be placed, they love to be placed themselves in that category and have people believe it. And apparently some people did. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And that's a universal principle. If you, you exalt yourself, talking about if it's this self-motivation, self-centered motivation as the Pharisees had, then ultimately you're going to be humbled. That's not going to last. But those who humble themselves... They're the ones who will ultimately be exalted, even though they may have to go through, they may have to be tried in the fire between now and then. Nevertheless, that's the ultimate outcome. But then he begins the series of woes, the seven woes. Verse 13, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. In other words, people who would go in, you block the way and you corrupt them before they could even get to the door. You think that ever happens today? Similar thing, you know, in, in, in say, the church world? When people who sincerely are seeking God and want the kingdom of God and understanding the Bible the best way they can and 
somebody comes along with some other some ideas and they get them all sidetracked I think it happens yeah no doubt it does especially when you look around and see all the emphasis on money big money and big crowds mega churches we want to build mega church so what can we do to bring them in I know we'll have a, a motorcycle show or we'll have a you know something something crazy like that's unrelated to anything to do with God or the Bible or Jesus Christ or the gospel just to draw them in and what they're going to get when they get there this this one personality up on stage and in some cases claiming miracles all that sort of stuff then verse 15 we'll skip 14 we've already talked about that woe to you scribes and this is the second woe woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte and when he is one that's that's a, a disciple a learner you let you travel land and sea to gain one now you're going to teach him about god you're going to teach him about the word of god you're going to instruct him in the traditions of the elders and when you when, when he is one you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves wrong language there you corrupt him you take someone who's who's molded can be molded because they're they're new to the ways of God they may be drawn to the synagogue they may be uh, drawn drawn to the God of Israel they want to learn his ways and then the Pharisees get a hold of him and they corrupt him so badly that uh, he's worse worse off than they are he, he becomes one of them on steroids then here comes the third woe woe to you blind guides who say whoever swears by the temple well it's nothing but whoever swears by the gold of the temple he's obliged to perform it you see I had a they had a system of oaths and whatever name or item you swore in if you swore by name or say the temple uh, then your oath was binding to the extent of the importance of whatever it was name is attached to the oath you understand what I'm saying and so to swear by the temple well there's wiggle room there you can kind of weave in and out and get out of it but now if it's the gold in the temple uh-uh that's you see you see the point here don't you that's much more binding that's what you know that's why Jesus says elsewhere swear not at all don't swear at all he's not saying anything is wrong with oaths he's not saying if you're in a courtroom and you're asked to raise your hand you swear and tell the truth hold the truth well you don't have to say no I don't swear well because all you're doing is affirming that's now why nowadays I said you swear or affirm but nevertheless he's not talking about that he's talking about the way the Pharisees approached it so when he says don't swear at all because by this time it had become so corrupted that anybody says I swear by this or that you say uh oh we know we can't trust him so that's why I said just let your yes be yes and your no be no you be you be what those oath laws in the Old Testament were designed to encourage that's be you be truthful be a person of your word goes on to say fools and blind for which is greater verse 17 the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold 
that should be a no-brainer, but apparently for them, they were so blinded by their own their own uh, vanity and, and pride and lust and everything else that they couldn't see it. And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. That's what they would say. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. What's his point here? If you take an oath, it's an oath. doesn't matter what name you attach to it. It's an oath. And God holds you responsible for being truthful. And by doing what you have promised you will do. Here comes the fourth woe now. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. That's it, mint and dill and cumin. And have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith, or faithfulness. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. In other words, here you're, you're meticulously tithing on these garden herbs you know, I guess in some cases, maybe counting the seeds or dividing them out, making sure they got that tenth set aside. Very meticulous on this. And by the way, I'll mention this. I think they were going beyond the requirement of the law. When you look at the law, it's talking about things grown in the crops. Garden herbs were for flavoring foods. That's what it was. It's not really, uh, I don't, I, I think, uh, my opinion is that the Pharisees were going beyond what God required in the law. But Jesus says, oh, that's, that's well and good. Go ahead and do that. That's fine. It's not a problem. Nothing wrong with it. But listen, if you're neglecting the weightier matters of the law and focusing on these externals, these things, the things that are obviously not as weighty, and becoming very meticulous in making sure you get that just right, but then... You're not focusing on justice and mercy and faithfulness and all three of those, all of those things. That's the underpinning of the law. It's, it's just clearly there everywhere. And those are the things the prophets emphasize. He says, you, you know, you're in a heap of trouble. <laughs> That's what you're doing. And that is what they were doing. With this in mind, go back to, hold your place there and go back to Micah 6. Micah chapter 6. And you will see exactly where this is drawn from. Now, I said he's using the language of the prophets. And sure enough, he is in Micah chapter 6. And in verses 6 through 8. And here God is, actually in this chapter, God is pleading with Israel. Uh, and there's always this thread of judgment of punishment on Israel. And that's what we have in the context. But beginning in verse 6, it says, With what shall I come before the Lord, and, how my, and, and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? These are the externals. Offerings, sacrifices, these are external things. Now, God himself instituted those, but they are the external things. Are those external things any, of any value if there is no 
no internal reality behind it, such as repentance and faithfulness or mercy or, or sense of justice. No. It says, shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And this is what he requires right here. Here it is. It's not rivers of oil. It's not thousands of rams and burnt offerings. What does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? As Jesus says, the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. Same thing right there. So you have Jesus talking, using the language of the prophets here and applying these things to the Pharisees who, like the people back in the time of Micah, were emphasizing the externals and saying, can I appease God with my sacrifices? Or saying, let's make sure we get these sacrifices just right. Good sacrifices and a bunch of them. That way maybe we can get a blessing. Meantime, they're corrupt within. That's the problem here with the Pharisees. And you see, that, it was that, that ultimately brought judgment upon Jerusalem. That's why I say it's important to realize that what is described in the Olivet Prophecy is not exclusively in the future. There was a judgment that came upon Jerusalem because of these very things. And what did having these very things in their hearts do? Evidently, they were an influential force there because how many people ultimately converted of all the Jews that were in Jerusalem and came there annually for the pilgrimage festivals, how many of them ultimately accepted Jesus Christ? Their own Messiah. Their own, the one that they looked to as the Davidic monarch. The one who had a right to the throne of David. They rejected him. And why? Because evidently this was fairly widespread in that culture at that time. So judgment came to Jerusalem. And here you have Jesus using the language of the prophets. Before we go on further, let's uh, look at one other passage, a couple of other passages back in Isaiah. Look at Isaiah chapter 5. Chapter 5. I'm just going to read the first line or first few words of several verses here. Verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house. They add field to field. Now here he's talking about <coughs> greed. <coughs> Woe to those who do this. Woe, verse 11, Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may follow intoxicating drink. Drunkenness, of course, and also uh, other forms of self-indulgence and things associated with that social and moral corruption. And he says in verse 18, Woe to those who draw iniquity, iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as if it were a cart rope. Verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. 21, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe to men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink. So here he's describing greed, self-indulgence, drunkenness, social corruption, moral corruption, and other such things, calling good evil, evil good. And this is a this is a judgment being issued 
to those people for those things. And when you go back to Isaiah chapter 1, you see, let's go back to Isaiah chapter 1 briefly before we go back to uh, Matthew 23. Verse 11, he says, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? Says the Lord, I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fat cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or the lambs or goats. You know, he instituted these things, so what's he talking about here? He said, I've had enough of you. You keep bringing them. Let's read on what he says. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. I thought they were supposed to do that. Well, they are. You see, the, again, these are externals, and they were doing the externals. But he's saying, those externals, those things you're doing, they're an abomination to me. When you come to appear... Uh, or, or let me let me take it up there and again verse 13 bring no more futile sacrifices incense is an abomination to me the new moons the sabbaths the calling of assemblies i cannot endure now here's the key iniquity and the sacred meeting see what he's saying your new moons and your pointed feasts my soul hates now some people i know it has been said that well they were keeping the feast at the wrong time no we, we don't need to make that assumption no, 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 they were keeping the feast and doing the sacrifices and they appeared to be very meticulous in the way they were doing it. But his point here is, I, he says, I hate your Sabbaths and your feasts and, and the new moon assemblies and all of these things. I hate them. Why? Because the internal reality was not there. No real repentance, no justice, no mercy, no faithfulness that were doing these external things, thinking that they could get God's attention by doing that. They were reducing him, in other words, to a pagan god. That's how you get the attention of Baal and Ashtoreth and gods of that nature. You offer them really good sacrifices. So, hey, maybe he'll like this one. Boy, this is a good one here. I know, I know. We'll offer some children. We actually did that sort of thing. But God is saying here, look, I'm, I'm full of your sacrifices. I'm very displeased with you. He says, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, what's he talking about? They spread out their hands before the altar at the sacrifices. I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. I will not hear. Why? Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doing from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice. How do you do that? Well, rebuke the repressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. Come and let us reach together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. So well, you, had, you had a people who had all these externals there, but the internal reality that should have accompanied them was not. It was not. And that, that's why God says, look, your sacrifices and all the things you do and have my name attached to it, whether it's prayer, whether it's keeping the Sabbath, the holy days, whatever it is, it's no good. 
because of what's in your heart and the fact that you're not a people of justice and mercy and faithfulness. So back to Matthew 23, Jesus continues, making driving the point home in verse 24. He says, blind guides strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Now this is a humorous statement, but and, and if you could, and it was probably originally spoken in Aramaic, and it would be even funnier to you if you could hear it in Aramaic because the word gnat and the word camel are pronounced very similarly. It would be like, like if I said, well, you strain at a gnat and swallow a rat. Now, both are unclean creatures. Both the gnat was an unclean creature and the camel, both of them. And here they are, they, and they would actually do this. This was done in, the, in that time. You understand that in that world, uh, the wine, kind of, of a weak wine compared to the kind that uh, we drink. But uh, anyway, the wine they had, obviously it drew gnats. Lots of them in that time. And the gnats would get into the wine. That's why they would cover it carefully and seal it tight so that gnats couldn't get in. When they did, they'd run it through the strainer. Because they didn't want any part of that unclean creature to be in their drink. <laughs> so they'd strain it carefully. So here they are straining out this one little piece of a gnat. And yet Jesus says, then you turn right around and, and stuff a camel down your, figuratively speaking. Swallow a camel. Obviously they were, he's talking about the same thing. They were, their, their priorities were all wrong. The fifth woe. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of extortion and self-indulgent. Blind Pharisees cleanse, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. You know, they look good sitting up there on the shelf. You take one of them down, you look inside it. Ew. He's comparing them with that. You look good on the outside. Boy, you make some beautiful prayers out there in public. And look at those phylacteries and, and the hymns. Boy, you have some kind of standing in the community, don't you? See, that they went by those things back then, hymns and phylacteries and so on. Look at that. But inside, it's a different story. That's his point. These, these very powerful statements when you really think about them. He goes on to say, now to the sixth woe, verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And again, apparently this, this permeated much of that society because they brought themselves under covenant wrath. And that's really what this chapter 24 alludes to covenant wrath this is why the temple was coming down this is why Jerusalem would be besieged and this curse go back and read the blessing and cursing chapters in the Old Testament now God promised to bless and multiply and make them fruitful and all of those wonderful things if they would obey him and remain faithful to the covenant but if you're unfaithful if you don't then this is what's going to happen uh, ultimately loss of the land scattering of the people and this, that's what did happen. That's exactly what did happen. 
The seventh woe now. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of Gehenna? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and they did. The prophets, wise men, and scribes, of course, the apostles, the evangelists, and others. And some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, and they did. That on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah. Abel was the first righteous person to be killed by an unrighteous one, and Zechariah was the last, as far as in the uh, uh, the Jewish, the Hebrew canon, first and the last of the righteous men to be killed by the unrighteous. That's uh, Zechariah. It's a little bit problematic, Zechariah, there because it says the son of ba uh, Berechiah, uh, the the one, the last Zechariah that was killed. There are several Zechariahs, and and three, two or three of them, I think, were martyrs. But the reason we think this was the Zechariah that's the last one mentioned in the uh, Hebrew canon of Scripture is, is for that reason. You have the first and the last, Abel to Zechariah. And, uh, but the fact is, he was not the son of Berechiah. And for that reason, for this reason, there are some scholars who believe that a, a copyist inserted son of Berechiah. It wasn't in the original. That, that's something we don't know. We don't know why it's that way. Whom you murdered, notice he said, you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all, now get this, all these things, what things? The curse he just pronounced on them after these seven woes. And now he pronounces the curse, what's about to befall them, because they have shed the blood of the righteous and are about to fill to the fullness of the iniquity of their fathers before them. All these things will come upon this generation. Does that mean a future generation? Is that the terminal generation? No, it's talking about them. Them. And it did. It came upon them. And then he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house has left you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more, though you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then that is the lead-in. That's the backdrop to the Olivet Prophecy, which is all about the curse that would befall those people and the city of Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70, which was approximately 40 years, it was that generation, approximately 40 years from the time Jesus spoke these words. 
That's why I say it's important to realize that the Olivet Prophecy, while it does speak of the second coming of Christ, it points our attention in that direction. Nevertheless, it is also something that was imminent, something that was meaningful to those people in that day. You know, because you think about it, that the temple was the heart of Jewish culture. It was the very heart of their religious life and their cultural life. And to go there, to make that trip to Jerusalem at the pilgrimage festivals, and many of them couldn't make it every year. But to go there was, in some cases, the experience of a lifetime. That was perceived as the place of God's special presence. The Shekinah glory was there. God dwelt, in a manner of speaking, in that temple. And this was the city of the great king, the city of David, and would be the city of the Davidic king of the future. And here is that Davidic king pronouncing judgment upon that city and upon that time. And you know, when the temple did come down, that was an external, visible symbol of the demise of the old age and the beginning of a new. When Christ, the Messiah, the Davidic king, would gather a people from all nations and tongues and tribes and people. And then that brings us to their destiny when he returns, when he comes again. So the important thing for us, I believe, here, we don't have to have all of our eschatological, uh, you know, the, the T's crossed and the, the I's dotted. We don't have to have all knowledge when it comes to matters of the future eschatology as we call it, uh, but the important, we, do, we do need to learn the lessons. The important things here is what we did, the, the important, the, what really jumps out at us is in our, in our walk with Christ, in our life, in our desire to please God, we do not allow externals and how people see us, we do not allow those things to take precedence and take to become dominant. We don't focus on the external. I'm not saying we don't do things externally. Of course we do. You know, we, we come to church. That's something that's a good thing to do. It's an external. But if we learn anything from this, we learn that we focus on the internal. That's where our relationship with God really is. Internally. We come before him with a repentant spirit, a humble spirit, a merciful spirit. And you know, if we expect to receive mercy, we have to be willing to extend mercy. And that lesson is all throughout the section. The Pharisees didn't have it. They missed the point. Focusing on the externals, they missed the real purpose and the real spirit of the law. And so the admonition for us, the exhortation for us, is let's not be like the scribes and Pharisees, but let's learn from the things Jesus said to them and realize that God looks at the heart. External things, well, they matter. Let's get them right, but let's make sure we focus on the heart, on the internal, on our approach to God and our approach to each other, and make sure that it's from a sincere and truly repentant and converted and humble heart. That's what God wants to see in us.